Well, what a delight. What a delight to be one of the pastors in this church and to listen to you sing and then to be able to celebrate stories of how God is at work. It's just awesome. Now, today, we're in the book of Proverbs, and so if you have a Bible, we encourage you to bring a Bible, by the way. Some of you are into the smart Bible thing, and that's fine, too. You can open the app. But um, Proverbs 11 is where we're going to be. Now, this section of Proverbs we're going to be looking at today, it is, uh, the entire section is attributed to King Solomon. It's focused on helping us to see how God designed the world to work according to his governing authority. What this means is, uh, practically speaking, in life we face a myriad of choices, okay? And how we make those choices and what our motives are behind the choices we make It can be either bad or good. It can be costly or it can be profitable. But whatever the case, uh, the Proverbs are intended to serve us in that process, to help us to understand how God designed the world to work according to his wisdom and his power. And so what Proverbs does is it provides us guidance. We can learn here what it means to live according to godly wisdom. And so... This very short verse will actually be popping up again and again throughout our text today. And let me read it now. Proverbs 11, 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Let's pray. Lord, we come to your word I pray with humility, knowing that it is the revealed words inspired by the Holy Spirit, penned by faithful people of God, to help us to know your heart and to help us to live in a way that reflects your heart. And so we pray, Lord, that you would open eyes to see, open ears to hear, and soften hearts that we might be shaped and made into something new today by your grace. Amen. Now, on November 17th of 1863, President Abraham Lincoln delivered the Gettysburg Address at the dedication of the Soldiers National Cemetery in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Now, his remarks on that day Though only two minutes, about two minutes in length, they are not uh, only considered one of the finest speeches of all time, but those words are now immortalized. They're etched in stone in the walls of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. Now, what you may not realize is that on that day, Lincoln was not the keynote speaker. Uh, His remarks followed the two-hour speech by Edward Everett, who was considered one of the greatest speakers of the Civil War era. Okay? Now, believe it or not, two-hour speeches in those kinds of events were common in those days. And you think my sermons are long, right? Not only did Edward's speech tower over Lincoln's in terms of length, but Lincoln delivered his remarks while it was said he was dizzy and pale because we know that was the beginning of a prolonged illness for Lincoln. Now, in the middle of his now famous Gettysburg Address, Lincoln read these words. 
The world will little note nor long remember what we say here. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here. Now, though he couldn't have been more wrong in terms of the significance of the words he spoke that day, one can't help but admire his humility. One of the reasons I believe he's considered one of the greatest presidents in American history is because of the adversity he overcame, of course, to many of the significant decisions he was a part of, but also because of the humility with which he led. It's interesting how his leadership models for us how humility is truly a descent into greatness which affirms Jesus' words that he who wants to be great must be a servant of all. So Lincoln, he embodied this in his life. He embodied it in his leadership. And again, it made him one of the greatest leaders of our nation's history. What a radical contrast this is to today's political climate. Okay, the sad truth is, In today's reality television world, humility, it's almost a dirty word. Because in our broader culture, we celebrate arrogance and pride. As as we laugh at it, we're entertained by it, and we really see it as the only way to truly win. So perhaps now more than ever, it's fitting for us to contemplate godly wisdom when it comes to matter of pride matters of pride and humility. And so today, we're going to focus in three very simple categories by answering three simple questions. The first is, how is it that we are to be humble? The second, how is it that we fail to be humble? And third, how is it, how in the world is it that we can bridge this gap between our failure And our calling as Christians to live in humility. And so let's look at the first one. How are we to be humble? Now the terminology for humility appears around 100 times in the Bible. So it's a very, very common word throughout scriptures. So to get a better understanding of what King Solomon meant and ultimately what God meant when we were exhorted to embrace humble wisdom, what I want to do is do a quick survey, okay? So you may not be able to turn your pages quick enough to follow along. But let me just look at like five different spots in scripture that help define humility for us. The first is right where we were. Proverbs 11.2 reads, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. In this we see that humility, it's the opposite of pride. That humility or humble living is somehow this vehicle for wisdom. So if you want to be humble... You reject pride. Later in Proverbs, Proverbs 22.4 reads, The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Now, to remind you, in previous messages, we talked quite a bit about fearing the Lord, but I think it can be best understood as reverencing, as honoring the Lord. It's, it's learning that the humble life is a life that reveres, that that comes underneath in awe and respect for the Lord. So if you you want to be humble, you need to live your life with a deep respect, with an 
awe for the wonder and majesty of a holy and loving Father. Deuteronomy 8.2 says, And you shall remember the whole way of the Lord. Your Lord has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. Now, can you think of an experience in your life where you were humbled? I spent time this week thinking about these experiences. Those experiences that you've had, and this this passage referring to the years of wandering for the nation of Israel, as as we see and observe those things, it leads us to these profound lessons in humility, right? Why? Because it's in the context of failure often that that we are humbled. So if you want to be humble, you need to learn from your experiences of failure, weakness, and inability, and and don't run from those experiences. Don't turn to, to other things to satisfy your heart, but learn from those experiences as an opportunity to humble yourself before the Lord. Let's think of two examples now in the New Testament. In Philippians 2.3, we read, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now, this gives us a picture, a beautiful picture of humility in that it leads us to esteem and to care for others. So to be humble is to live under that golden rule to Love our neighbors as we love ourselves. So if you want to be humble, you need to care for people well. You need to put your own needs and concerns on the shelf for the sake of the needs and concerns of others. And finally, in 1 Peter 5, 5, it reads like this. Likewise, you who are younger, okay, so starting speaking to the younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves all of you with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So in this section in First Peter, Peter is couching humility in this, in this picture of submission to authority. And you know, like I said, he's targeting young people at first, knowing that young people tend to be like those stallions, right? You feel invincible, you feel this love for this sense of independence. And because of this, Peter wants to make the point that those of you who are young, submit yourselves to elders. Come under God's authority in the church because it will produce humility. And we're to live in a culture of humility as we submit to one another, as we submit to Christ. And in that, there is somehow this gift of God's grace to us. So if you want to be humble, submit yourselves to others. Reject autonomy and independence. Submit to Christ, to the church, to other Christians. So I think you get the point here that the scriptures have a lot to say about humility. And so let me just summarize from those texts, maybe a concise definition. The humble life is a grace-filled life that rejects prides, 
rests in God's goodness, submits to authority, puts others before self, embraces weakness and inability, and sees tests and trials as an opportunity to trust in God. Now, I did a lot of reading this week and previous weeks. It's awesome. There's so much great material on humility, though not a lot of sermons preached on it. And uh, there's another great definition I want to share with you, very powerful, from Andrew Murray. So listen to these words. Humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I am blamed or despised. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my Father in secret and am at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around and above is trouble. Now, Laurel Eccles, the administrative coordinator here, we were talking about the sermon the other day, and she, um, weeks ago, had introduced me to Henry Nowen. And, and he's a writer. It's been a blessing to read some of his things uh, in recent weeks. And the late Dr. Nowen has an interesting story. He, is a, he was a priest, a professor. He was a beloved pastor. And in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, he taught at some of the most prestigious schools. Okay? He, he taught at Notre Dame, at Yale, and at Harvard. And he was an acclaimed author, uh, wrote over 40 books, He was a beloved uh, professor, very, very popular in his academic career. And and if anyone could have, he could have ended his life just coasting on these accomplishments, living off of the royalties of all the books, etc. But instead, he chose to spend most of his final years living in France and serving as an aide to people with developmental disabilities. So he ended his life in obscurity among those who had no comprehension of his many degrees, of the books he had written, he fed, he cleaned, he loved the disabled, those marginalized and cast aside by much of society. So Henry Nouwen, he was a man at peace with God, a man who understood better than many of us that a humble life is a life that's in tune with vulnerability and weakness, that is motivated towards care and compassion. Now when reflecting, as, as he was writing, and one of the things that I've recently read, he was reflecting on how Jesus showed compassion to a hungry crowd. I don't know if you remember the story, but Jesus... Jesus is with 5,000, and there's no food available. And the scriptures say he had compassion upon them. And so he fed a hungry crowd of 5,000 with only five loaves and two fishes, one of the most powerful and beautiful miracles in scripture. And reflecting upon that, this is what Nowen wrote. As long as we are occupied and preoccupied with our desire to do good, but are not able to feel the crying need of those who suffer, our help remains hanging somewhere between our minds and our hands and does not descend into the heart where we can care. 
But in solitude, our heart can slowly take off its many protective devices and can grow so wide and deep that nothing human is strange to it. Then we can become contrite, crushed and broken, not just by our sins and failings, but also by the pain of our fellow human beings. Then we can give birth to a new awareness, reaching far beyond the boundaries of our human efforts. And then we, who in fearful narrow-mindedness were afraid that we would not have enough food for ourselves, will have to smile. For then we discover that after having fed more than 5,000, there were still 12 baskets of bread and fish remaining. Then our care, born out of solitude, can become a sign of our faithful expectation of the coming day of complete joy. It's clear from now on that his personal journey toward Humility became a pathway to compassion. So we all have a question to grapple with today. And that is, how is God inviting us to a humble life? A life of dependence where true wisdom is found. Now, as you might expect, the pathway to humility is going to require us to deconstruct the opposite of humility, which is pride. It's kind of like an an army going to war, where the pathway to victory often requires a knowledge of the enemy. So, we've seen how we are to be humble, and let's now consider how it is that we fail to be humble, okay? Let's go back to Proverbs 11.2, where I read it again. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. So the enemy to humility is pride, and pride leads to disgrace. Now, Soren Kierkegaard defines pride as the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. So according to Kierkegaard, the essence of pride is self-centeredness. It's the belief that we can find meaning and purpose in ourselves and in others apart from God. And I would argue that those things I just mentioned are the two primary ways in which we attempt to find our worth and purpose apart from God, the first being that we often try to find our worth and purpose in what other people think of us. And the second, in our performance, in the things that we do. Now, we can observe these two forms of pride in the scriptures. Let's first look at how we attempt to find our own sense of worth and purpose in what others think of us. Look with me at John 12, and you can go ahead and turn there. Take a moment there. John 12 Verses 42 through 43. Now, in this section, Jesus is citing how prophecies predicted that he would be rejected by Jewish authorities. And then this is what the author John says of Christ, starting in verse 42. 
Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So here, Jesus is pointing out that some Jewish leaders, they actually professed belief. But they loved their influence. They loved their power. They loved the affirmation of the Pharisees more than God. And so John explains that they exchanged the glory of God in that moment for the glory that comes from man. Now, I think if we're all honest, we can identify with this same struggle. Okay, and in case you don't believe me, I want you to consider how it is that you'd answer these few questions, okay? These questions are for you. How would you answer them? Do you worry about what other people think of you? Would you rather sin than face the rejection of certain people? Do you talk too much, finding yourself often monopolizing conversations? Do you ever go fishing for compliments by highlighting either things that you've done or by overstating your weaknesses? Do you have a difficult time admitting your need for help? Would you rather avoid conflict than seek resolution? Do you ever fail to witness out of fear? If you answer yes to any of these questions, not only are you like me, but it's an indication of a struggle with pride, an attempt to find your worth and your identity and the meaning of your life through what others think of you. So we see in the scriptures that pride is often rooted in seeking the approval of others, but we also see that pride is shown in how we attempt to find our worth and purpose in performance, in status, in all of those things. And I have two examples for you. First is in Genesis 3. Here we go to the, the first humans created by God, Adam and Eve, and at this time they were without sin, but Eve, now alone in the garden with the serpent, she was tempted to eat that fruit that God had forbidden her to eat. And here's the interchange we see in Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5. But the serpent, who was the devil, he said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here, Satan, in the form of a serpent, he not only contradicts God's instructions by encouraging Eve to eat of the fruit, but he tempts her with this motivation. You too can be like God. Okay? The serpent wanted her to believe that God was somehow jealous, that he was this cosmic killjoy wanting to keep all the power for himself. And so the serpent was stirring up these feelings of pride and desire in Eve that all she would have to do is eat this fruit and then she too would exercise power and knowledge just like God. Now we can trace the same form of pride even earlier to Satan himself in the, 
book of Isaiah, many theologians believe that the words of Isaiah 14, 12 through 14 are actually describing the fall of the angel Lucifer, who later became the devil, who was an angel, who rebelled against God, and that his rebellion led him to be cast out of the heavens. And read along verses 12 through 14 of Isaiah 14. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, O sun of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And so Satan's desire to ascend above God, to have more meaning and purpose, to be his own God, it resulted in his fall. Hence the phrase from Proverbs that pride goes before a fall. Now I share these two examples because they they show that the foundation of sin is pride. How according to Kierkegaard's quote... Right? Pride is an attempt to find meaning apart from God, to contest God, to, to control your power and your life and, and to be your own God. So if you're a person like me, you also struggle at times thinking of yourself too highly. Attempting to find your meaning and value from something other than the Lord. And in case you don't think this is a struggle you can identify with, consider how you would answer the following questions. Do you tend to value influential people more than people with little or no influence? Are you often critical of other people? Are you stubborn and controlling? Are you resistant to admit that you don't know something? In other words, are you unteachable? Do you become angry when contradicted or criticized by others? Do you gossip about other people? Are you reluctant to admit your own faults? Do you tend to find the way to turn those conversations back to you, to the things you know or the things you have done? If you answer yes, like me, to any of these questions, then you struggle with pride trying to find your purpose and identity in your own knowledge, in your own performance. Remember again the words of Proverbs eleven two: When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Now what's clear here is that pride comes at a significant cost, that with pride comes disgrace, that the proud life is an exhausting life. It is a difficult life to live. It is a life that not only hurts you, the proud person, but it hurts those around you. Now, years ago, uh, in Vogue magazine, now this is not a magazine I read, but I, I read someone else quote this, and I found it helpful. There was this interview with the musical artist Madonna, okay? And uh, this interview just drives this point home powerfully. So listen to Madonna's words from that article. My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. 
that is, always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. Now, what Madonna says here shows a depth of honesty that most of us are unwilling to confess. But her comments illustrate that a life that proves itself through personal performance, that it's an agonizing way to live. It's a lifelong marathon that never ends. Now, this is captured powerfully in another short quote I want to mentioned to you by Henry Nouwen. Aren't you, like me, hoping that some person, thing, or event will come along to give you that final feeling of inner well-being you desire? Don't you often hope, may this book, idea, course, trip, job, country, or relationship fulfill my deepest desire? But as long as you are waiting for that mysterious moment You will go on running, helter-skelter, always anxious and restless, always lustful and angry, never fully satisfied. You know that this is the compulsiveness that keeps us going and busy, but at the same time makes us wonder whether we are getting anywhere in the long run. This is the way to spiritual exhaustion and burnout. This is the way to spiritual death. So we've answered the question, how is it that we're to be humble? We've thought about the question, how is it that we fail to be humble? And now, this leads us to this final and oh-so-important question. How do we bridge the gap between our failure and our pride and the calling of all Christians to live a humble life? Now, we have something that King Solomon didn't have because he didn't know about the gospel of Jesus Christ, this transforming power that gives us the ability to be something new. And so, to answer this question of our transformation between the gap of our pride and humility, we need to only look to Jesus, and that's what we're going to do. It's beautifully portrayed in Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Now here, Paul, he's helping us to understand what Jesus did for us and how that changed us. So follow along, starting at verses 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So the first thing I want us to observe in these verses is that Christ has redeemed and rescued all who believe in him. 
In other words, Christ did the work necessary to save us from sin. Philippians 2.8 explains this beautifully, that on the cross, Jesus, he gave his life in order to take the punishment we deserve for sin. What does it say? It says that in doing so, he was humbling himself. He was becoming obedient to death. And so in his death, Jesus modeled for us the ultimate act of humility by giving his life as a sacrifice for sin, a sacrifice that resulted in a brutal and cruel death upon the cross, and even worse, that resulted in the wrath of God stored up for our sin being poured out upon him. Now, the second thing that we can observe in these verses in Galatians 4 is that because of our redemption purchased for us by Jesus, we are adopted as sons and daughters into God's family, becoming heirs of Christ's vast fortune, his righteousness, the Spirit. And so Jesus' death purchased our adoption changing us from enemies of God to sons and daughters. So we're no longer slaves to the approval of others because we become children of God. Saved not by our performance or anything at all that we have done or can do, but by the performance of Christ on our behalf. Years ago in St. Louis, along the Mississippi River, two brothers decided to play on the river's edge on top of several massive piles of sand. Now, how these piles are created is that there are these large dredges that what they do is they they troll the Mississippi River, picking up sand in order to clear the channel so that large ships can pass. And so these brothers left home for the afternoon, unattended as they played around in the neighborhood. But this particular afternoon, they decided, I'm sure against their mother's wishes, to bike to the river. Well, if you know kids, upon seeing these massive mountains of sand, they quickly climbed to the top, as most children would, and they began jumping and sliding with great delight. The problem is that as the wet sand from these dredges dries, large internal caverns are created by that draining water. And it means that inside of those piles of sand, there are hidden voids that are incredibly dangerous. So when these boys didn't return home for dinner, family and neighbors organized a search, which eventually led them to the river where they found the younger of the two boys, only his head and shoulders sticking out from one of the massive mounds of sand. Now the boy was unconscious because of the pressure of the sand on his small body, but fortunately as they cleared the sand from his chest, he came to. And now conscious, the rescuers asked the boy frantically, where is your brother? To which he replied, I'm standing on his shoulders. 
with the sacrifice of his own life, the older brother had lifted the younger to safety. And this is what Jesus did for us. We stand on the sacrifice of his life laid down for us. We stand on the performance that he did, his righteousness given to us and is an inheritance of grace. Now, this might lead you to think, well, that's really beautiful. I mean, that's moving. But what does this have to do with my pride becoming humility? Well, thanks to Tim Keller, he gives us a great answer in this small book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's a great little read. I encourage it to you. In it, he suggests that once we understand the sacrificial gospel of Jesus... The thoughts that we can somehow make ourselves worthy of love and respect, the thoughts that we need to impress anyone else, they begin to fade. That in the shadow of the cross, we actually forget about ourselves, thinking of him. And he is why we do what we do. And in light of that, our fear of failure fades Our need to impress fades. The pressure to perform fades. Here's what he writes. Friends, wouldn't you want to be a person who does not need honor, nor is afraid of it? Someone who does not lust for recognition, nor, on the other hand, is frightened to death of it? Don't you want to be the kind of person who, when they see themselves in a mirror or reflected in a shop window, does not admire what they see, but does not cringe either? Wouldn't you like to be the type of person who, in their imaginary life, does not sit around fantasizing about hitting self-esteem home runs, daydreaming about successes that give them the edge over others, or perhaps you tend to beat yourself up And to be tormented by regrets, wouldn't you like to be free of them? He then goes on to explain how this happens when a person truly understands the significance of all that Jesus Christ did in the gospel. He writes that in that moment, I can start to enjoy things that are not about me. My work is not about me. My romance is not about me. My dating is not about me. I can actually enjoy things for what they are. They're not just for my resume. They're not just to look good on my college or job application. They're not just a way of filling the emptiness. Wouldn't you want that? This is gospel humility. Blessed self-forgetfulness not thinking more or less of myself, simply thinking of myself less. You see, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that gives us the ability to forget self and to think of Christ. To go about your life pleasing the audience of one. 
to rest on his performance, not your own. A reality that helps us to bridge the gap between pride and humility, striving and rest, neediness to contentment, disgrace to wisdom. Now to close, I'm going to invite you to do something a little different. We're going to pray a prayer together. And you're going to find the words printed on the screen as we join our voices together in giving this prayer to the Lord. Oh Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me. From the desire of being esteemed, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being loved, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being extolled, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being honored, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being praised, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being preferred, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being consulted, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being approved, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being humiliated, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being despised, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of suffering rebukes, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being forgotten, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being ridiculed, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being wronged, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being suspected, deliver me, Jesus. That others may be loved more than I, Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be esteemed more than I, Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That in the opinion of the world, others may increase and I may decrease, Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be chosen and I set aside, Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be praised and I unnoticed, Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be preferred to me in everything, Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others become holier than I, provided that I may become as holy as I should, Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. In Jesus' name we pray.